Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Tonight, those times when we get hooked by sticky concerns, the times when we spiral down into a, an issue that we can't let go of, Such times can be very disconcerting. We are used to having a degree of control over where we focus our attention. The left hemisphere, which is the more functional hemisphere in adult life, volitional attention, the cingulate, allows us to focus on very narrow goals and opportunities and long-term plans and to proceed after them. And for much of our lives, we are capable of waking up and setting about uh, getting a set of routines accomplished and addressing pressing uh, obligations or responsibilities. It creates this this, uh, experience that we should be able to focus the mind on whatever we want, whenever we want to, and that we shouldn't have to experience times where uh, unwanted thoughts or memories pop up into, again and again and again, into awareness. We expect our adult minds essentially to be under our control. It's amazing that we are capable of forgetting what it's like to be in minds that are predominantly activated by right hemispheric concerns, which are the way we spend actually the first four or five years of our lives. The problem is is that the right hemisphere mind is, uh, the experiences are not consciously recallable. Early attachment experiences and all of the early formative experiences, we were predominantly right hemispheric and During that phase of our life, we actually didn't have very much control over what we paid attention to. If you ever get to hang out with little kids, you'll notice that they can be easily distracted, their attention can be pulled in any direction, and they are very um, subjected to sudden mood dysregulation. They can become suddenly excited and then pivot on a dime and become terribly upset because something they expect they didn't get. All of those are hallmarks of um, right hemisphere formative years of life. To say the least, any experience or event that triggers the right hemisphere, the emotional uh, triggers, can be exceedingly difficult to put aside. Again, the first, the first four or five years of life, we are developing our expectations of other people, views of the world, what kind of people to seek love and attention with are being formed. The right hemisphere is deeply concerned with security, a felt sense, especially of being safely bonded with others, other people that uh, get us, understand us, emotionally care about us. 
The right hemisphere is exceedingly concerned with security. It wants to avoid anything that reminds it of a time where we were abandoned or rejected. It's also deeply implicated with um, compulsive behaviors. Anytime in childhood uh, we experience with abandonment or rejection or on the other hand, times where we felt really important and loved by others will be deeply lodged in the temporal lobe and the right amygdala and it will create triggers that in the future can essentially will lock on to. So again, it's concerned with attachment, it's concerned with avoiding anything that reminds us of rejection, ostracization, and abandonment, and it's really switched on by anything that reminds us of a time when we were really important to our caregivers. So for people uh, in childhood who associate uh, times of closeness and care when they were fed, that can set us up in adult life for seeking food to soothe us whenever we have uh, a mood plummet. Or if in childhood we really felt most connected and loved when we were given a present, then in adult life that can set us up for binging and shopping and so forth behaviors. If in childhood we felt safest when we were finally allowed to get to our room and be not interrogated by parents, then that can set us up to seek, of course, isolation and, and self-reliance in adult life and so forth. So we are activated by anything that's associated with getting our deepest needs met. We are triggered by anything that reminds us of times our deepest needs were not met and we had a rapid shift from the, the parasympathetic into the sympathetic nervous system and so forth. Negative damaging abandonment experiences create timeless complexes or schemas. And they have different names in therapeutic modalities. They're essentially rules. And these rules tell us, for instance, if you're in third grade and somebody asks you to show your finger painting to the class and people start, the other kids start laughing at you and you accidentally wet yourself. And so it's that experience of showing your creative expression to a group of people leads to shame. Then in your adult life, if somebody asks you to dance or be silly or to, you know, there's any creative vulnerability, you will, of course, shut down, seek distance or just do anything to protect yourself. You'll engage in defensive behaviors. We also, in, you know, once again, uh, will block contact with people in any situation that reminds us of an abandonment experience in childhood. So, for example, if you're a little girl and you seek uh, to uh, be soothed and cared for at times by your father, but your father sometimes is available, but often not present or not capable of seeing your needs, then in adult life, you will find a partner who is, if you're straight, you will find a partner 
who is, a, you know, the, the, you'll be attracted to people who are, have, are unreliable, who are not capable of reliably giving you attention. You will seek love from people who are unreliable because that was your formative experience that showed you, that defined love for you and so forth. And so when you are with someone who's emotionally unavailable and they disappear, it will trigger preoccupation. And suddenly we'll be staring at our phone. Where's the text? Where's the call? Why hasn't this person connected with me? Because the exact same emotional experience of childhood has been reduplicated in adult life. And it's the same for positive experiences. Once again, you know, uh, if in childhood you felt really closest to your parents when you did something creative, you sang and they really loved it, or you danced, then in adult life you'll gravitate towards the entertainment industry. You'll want to be creative because that's the time in your life in childhood where you felt most secure and most loved. So all of this is, I think, fairly straightforward. We are deeply primed by our early life experiences and we tend to chase after situations that recreate those rewarding situations. We tend to also, uh, define what love is based on early childhood experiences and we avoid things that are associated with abandonment or trauma from childhood. So you'd think that it would be nice if this information was available to us consciously, but all these experiences happen so early in life that the part of the brain that creates narrative memories isn't formed yet. The circuits aren't there. So the right hemisphere stores these wounds, these these triggers, and it conveys these needs in a couple of different ways. One, by physiological stress, and two, by bringing up images uh, that are associated with some emotional experience, and it brings up these images again and again and again. Now here's where the system really gets fucked up to, you know, to uh, use a clinical term. Um, it would be great if simply when somebody triggers us and their image keeps coming up in our mind, somebody who we thought was a friend who's no longer available, it would be one thing if just their image kept popping up in our mind or if somebody we started dating uh, ghosts us um, and their image, you know, or the sense of uh, this emotional struggle of abandonment kept on occurring. But it doesn't stop there. It actually even gets more wor worse <laughs> because the left hemisphere, when we start having this image pop up again and again in our mind, or we start having this uh, strong affect state, jumps in and it tries to explain why the fuck am I feeling this way? And so it will start to um, try to narrate or explain and figure it out and solve it. So it'll launch into an obsessive narration 
oh, if I could only get that girl or guy to, if I could only figure out what I said, or if I can, uh, I wonder what they're thinking, or I wonder what I could do to change the outcome, or, you know, it starts to essentially uh, hyper-narrate and, and try to solve, because that's the left hemisphere's job. It, it tends to, to create a lot of language, and it tries to interpret what's going on. And the problem is that the left hemisphere has no idea that the current events that have triggered us have activated really early emotional wounds. And so by continually bringing up the current experience, the current abandonment, the current person, the current situation, it never will have any chance of addressing the core issue of what's been activated. I'm going to give you a couple of examples to make this clear because this can obviously sound pretty abstract. Um, a famous Buddhist teacher, uh, Jack Kornfield, um, wrote a book, uh, Path with Heart, and in one of the chapters uh, he talks about how when he became and he ordained to become a monk in training in Thailand, where he studied with Ajahn Chah. And um, before he ordained, of course, uh, you have to, if you're in a relationship, you have to end the relationship. Monks are in the, the Buddhist tradition, or in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, or celibate. So he, the relationship was, was ended. And uh, it wasn't a very long-term relationship, but when he, be, when he ordained, he couldn't stop thinking about his ex. Again and again and again and again, it, he kept his, the, the thought about her kept popping up again and again and again and again in his mind. And no matter how many times he tried to reassure himself and tell him, well, if it doesn't work out, I can get back together with her, you know, if... if or whatever, nothing was alleviating the repetitive thought that kept on coming up. So finally, he realized that he had to address it in an entirely different way. He, instead of trying to push away or solve this uh, repetitive image, concern, abandonment, not abandonment, uh, disconnection, he would instead just put the image aside and go into his body and find somatically where the core affect was associated with disconnection. And he just sat with that feeling. And over a period of time, a much older wound became available. He realized from feeling into that tightness in his belly, that hollowness in his chest, the feeling of abandonment, that stemming all the way back to his childhood, these different images of not getting loved and cared for and feeling connected with were not started to float up. And he realized that this disconnection with his girlfriend that proceeded going into the, the uh, training was just the tip of the iceberg that was attached to an entire history of feelings of disconnection and loneliness. And when he sat with those feelings, 
and gave them space, that it became clear that he there was no way he was going to alleviate that that obsessive uh, experience until he just held and mindfully uh, paid attention to the, that wound and grieved for all of those losses. And then eventually he decided that being a monk was not for him and that he did need the connection of a partnership and a relationship. And he learned that from sitting with that, but he realized that it was not just the disconnection with his girlfriend. It was an entire history of unmet needs that had created those wounds. So another example, this is going to sound really uh, uh, insane of me. That's good. I believe in demystifying any sense of that a Buddhist pastor teacher is uh, some kind of, you know, refined, floating, you know, above suffering type person. So uh, about eight years ago, I, or seven years ago, um, I, like all good New Yorkers, I had been avoiding jury duty for almost all of my life. Uh, literally planning vacations so that I would not be, you know, I could have, I could have tickets so that I could say, I can't literally doing anything because if you're a lifelong New Yorker, that is your absolute civic duty to do no civic duty whatsoever. Uh, but I finally had dodged that bullet enough times and they, they sent me one of those notes that were, there is no, you know, get out of jail free, no passing, you know, no way out. If you do not show up on this day, then we will issue like some kind of a war warrant, right? I'm like, holy fuck. And that you have to show up. And something about that triggered the fuck out of me. I was like literally like launching into inner speeches about how unfair this was. I'm a Buddhist teacher living by donations. I can't afford to do jury duties if anybody really can. But, you know, and then I started visualizing these absurd scenarios where it would be me in front of some judge you know, saying, but I'm a, you know, a socialist, you can't make me, you know, I'll find everybody innocent. So just <laughs> let me off, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and so I realized something, of course, after a few days of this, I realized this has triggered something very old. So I just stopped, I put aside all the trying to figure it out. And I just sat with the somatic, uh, the, the, the somatic state, the physiological state of tension and of the, the sympathetic nervous system, the tightness in my shoulders, the clenching in the top of my chest, that state of, of being defensive and things being unfair. And I just sat with that and then, all these images from my childhood being stuck with this dictatorial father who could at any time summon me in to talk with me and for some absurd reason I would be found guilty of something that I wasn't even aware of because he was a narcissistic drunk and you know he had good sides too but 
when he when he said, I need to talk to you, it never was any good. And so this present time event has activated this core wound of any time I am forced against my will to report to some authority, it activates this defensive, I'm not going to be taken care of, I'm vulnerable, I'm going to be fucked with. And I can guarantee you, like, still, even though it's been 25 years since I've had any alcohol or drugs, um, still, when I see policemen, I cringe. <laughs> you know, I get into this defensive, you know, and I have to relax and undo it because I know that any authority figure activates the sense of I'm not going to be okay. And I have to remember that it's not about the recent event, it's about this entire history and that I need to feel into and make that, part, that vulnerable part of myself feel taken care of. If I simply sat trying to figure out and tell myself again and again, I'll be okay, you know, it's just dury duty. it's only going to last for a little while, nothing would have been accomplished because the jury duty was simply activating an entire history of early wounds, of, of feeling unsafe. Is this sort of, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, we'll see this constantly uh, in, in my work, in counseling. I will constantly see people who are um, triggered into the preoccupied state when they have anxious attachment of constantly monitoring the relationship that they're in, expecting abandonment, because in childhood, a key care attachment figure was not capable of giving reliable attachment. And on the converse, people who have avoided attachment, uh, dismissive attachment, they will interpret any request for intimacy uh, as like uh, entrapment, like they're going to be engulfed. This was a, I was telling my friend this earlier, this is a really true story. I was sitting with a friend who's got a guy who's got really just classic avoided attachment. And I asked him, um, uh, how his new relationship was going. He was like, oh, I ended that. I haven't stopped thinking about how inappropriate she was. And I asked, oh, wow, what happened? And he said, well, uh, on Friday, we woke up and she said to me, happy birthday. <laughs> and I paused and I sort of in a very sort of quizzical way said, well, Friday was your birthday. So I'm not exactly <laughs> getting it. And he said, well, it shows that she looked at my Facebook page. That was enough to trigger him to not only end the relationship, but him to get locked into this spiraling thought of how she was trying to control and take over his life. So anything that reminds us of an early wound can trigger fleeing or feelings of unsafe, Anything that reminds us of a situation where we got special attention can activate an obsession. I've worked with people who become 
entirely fixated on attaining the perfect body because in their childhood, what, the only time they felt really loved is when they dressed up really nice and their a, a, a parent, a, you know, approved of their appearance. And so in adult life, they become obsessed with how much they weigh and how much they eat, etc. So in the core Dharma, the Buddha says that uh, there's this period in early life called uh, Nama Rupa, where our core personality traits are formed. This is just the same as attachment. And the Buddha says that the, these early experiences, when activated, appear in what he called Vedana, physiological states of discomfort, vulnerability, excitement, and that we get locked into obsessive thinking, which is called upadana, clinging. So the Buddha's uh, outlook on this is almost identical to our current understanding of what activates obsessive ideations. So then the question is, knowing what we've talked about, the key is to, as, a, as the Buddha continued in the discourses, the way out is to stop trying to figure out, stop trying to reassure us, stop trying to be logical and focus attention on finding literally the somatic physiological state that's beneath the obsession. Find what has been activated by your right hemisphere, the inner child, as they call it in some therapeutic traditions. Feel the somatic activation and just sit with it and allow the feelings to arise and without any blockage allow them to fully express themselves and then as you breathe and relax around them we start asking very gently what is it you really want me to know what's really in here what's beneath what's older than this what is what is what what's the deepest feeling here that i really need to know and we just gently in as simple language as possible just ask and just wait and it can take time but wait for any earlier images any earlier uh trace memories or any earlier feelings of of affect tightness you know fear whatever to present themselves the more we hold it and reassure and uh, soothe this part of ourselves then the obsession with the present event naturally on its own begins to dissipate and in grieving the earlier losses then we are not as activated by present disconnections or disappointments. And finally, in separating the past from the present, then we can attend to present solutions and dramas without all these earlier affects and emotional activations clouding our responses and making us have disproportionate defensive behaviors. The more we can essentially clear out the earlier wounds, then today in a relationship, if our needs are not getting met, or if somebody disappoints us, 
we won't have that desire to completely cut them out of our life or to yell or to essentially do something dramatic because the current situation will no longer be attached to all this entire history of earlier wounds which trigger much more desperate defensive behaviors. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> Sounds fun, right? You're like, oh my God. I just wanted to have a, you know, I just wanted to have a soothing, but we are going to have a soothing meditation, but we're also going to, uh, we're also going to clear out some of these early, uh, uh, states of being, these early, uh, chains of disappointing memories that can get activated by current experience. So I hope this talk was of some use in some small way, and now we're going to put it in practice. So your job is to get as damn comfortable as you can. Do not try to be a meditator. Take all those images of what a meditator should look like and throw them all away in the dustbin of your brain. And just allow yourself to one, close your eyes for a moment, at least, you know, if you don't want to meditate with your eyes closed, you don't have to, but just right now, close your eyes and allow your body to wobble from side to side, front to back, like your top, and then without thinking about it at all, just allow your body to come to a stop in whatever position feels the most relaxed. And then, Tilt your head up like you're looking at a really tall building. And we're doing that not only to prevent your head from slouching in front of your chest, but we're also doing it to stretch the front of the throat, uh, which is where the vagal nerve cluster, the ventral vagal, runs down. And having a good a head that's balanced well is conducive to uh, a much more easeful experience. So we're going to take a few breaths and try to restore the uh, body into uh, the broaden and build, rest and digest, parasympathetic state, and there's some techniques we can do to do that or at least move towards that. So the first is take a nice full in-breath through your nose and squinch all the muscles in the face, like a pinched nose, furrowed brow, tight jaw, locked jaw, you know, squinch tight, pinched little mouth, and then and relax, release the jaw. Release any tightness in the nose. Relax any tension in the micro-muscles around the eyes. Unfurl your brow. And just allow the face to, to settle. Keep the corners of the mouth as spread apart as is comfortable, preventing the mouth from being pinched. 
and encourage your eyes to settle behind the eyelids. The less activity in the nerve cluster that controls the movement of the eyes, the less frontal lobe activity. So just encourage the uh, eyes to settle into the eye sockets like they're two warm pools of water where they can float reminding your eyes that there's nothing to look at right now that we're in a safe environment and now let's take another full in-breath and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears pulling them slightly in front of your your face and then as you breathe out rotate the shoulders back and drop so you open up your chest and allow your arms to hang lifelessly and try to keep your hands in the most released so that the palms feel really soft and open when you open up the chest and release the shoulders we engage the vagal break which slows down your heart rate lowers your blood pressure sends a message up through the insula to the ventral medial part of your brain and says i'm okay i'm safe my shoulders are relaxed everything's everything's just okay right now and for our third complete full in breath either pulling your belly really tight or push it out really far something that feels really uncomfortable awkward and just hold it and then as you breathe out through the mouth soft belly the abdomen is where the dorsal vagal cluster of nerves ends and depending upon the muscle tension in your belly is deeply influential of the emotional state you're in when you might have noticed when you're in a state of anxiety or fear your muscles tighten in your stomach that's associated with the sympathetic nervous system tells you to stop digesting it informs you that you're under threat when your belly is soft associated with rest and digest parasympathetic so what we want to do is now engage in some really soothing belly breathing many of us associate the breath with either air the tip of the nose or with the chest and while that's all fine but in the early theravadan buddhist traditions uh, practitioners soothe by breathing into the belly and what that looks like is just feel this slight sort of 
expansion, like your belly is pulling in the breath. And then feel this gentle release. And as slowly as possible, allow the out breath to leave, like feeling as if your belly is pulling in and then releasing. The longer your exhalations, the more relaxed. If you can make your exhalations as twice as long as your in-breath, really engages. So counting up to, you count into up to three in your in-breath, then try to reach six in the out-breath, inclining your mind to six beats. If you count to four on your in-breath, then obviously eight. So we're just going to sit here for a while, just working with the breath and also hearing the sounds, feeling the body sensations, again, inclining the breath to be really long and soothing. Sometimes a thought about past or future scenarios or other issues will come up. And for right now, as much as you can, just bring your awareness back again and again to all the actual present time sensations. Again, when your mind wanders away, there's nothing wrong, nothing to get impatient. It's an opportunity to just experience again what it's like to relax back into life, trying to attain a state like the very first 
day of a long break. No place to go, nothing to do. You're really coming to a complete stop in life where we really land into the present and really check in with what it feels like right now just to be alive in a human body.
taking a few more really soothing, long exhalations, just gently releasing full in-breaths, long exhalations. Now before we start the second part of the meditation, take a moment to scan down front of your body where what's called the somatic markers or what the Buddha called Vedana is most clearly expressed. So just feeling, scanning down the front of your face, your eyes feel relaxed, your forehead, Unfurrowed. Do you feel a sense of ease in the area around the mouth? Scanning down the jaw, do you feel it clenched or released? Scanning down the front of the throat, does that feel Sort of contracted, or does it feel like those muscle groups that uh, contribute to vocalization? Do they feel relaxed? Does it feel constricted? Moving down to the shoulders, do they feel released or are they held like tight and clenched? And the chest, do you feel a sense of warmth and energy or? you feel numb there? Or is there a feeling of well-being in the, the sternum, the heart center? Does it feel open and expansive or, again, contracted? And then scanning down to the abdominal muscles, does the belly feel soft and pliant or tight, held in? Getting a real picture of where you are right now, somatically. And then what I'd like you to do is bring to mind some repeating concern that's difficult for you to let go of, something that's triggering. And one, don't worry, when we tend to voluntarily, volitionally bring to mind triggering issues, they're far less sticky because now your left hemisphere is doing it, not your right. But just bring to mind some topic that's generally very 
difficult for you to feel relaxed around. There's a lot of obsessive thinking. Could be about a friendship that's going awry, a relationship, or our status in relationships. It could be about our family. Could be about our work. Could be about uh, a living situation. Find whatever for you is that issue or concern that can sometimes keep us up or at night or just lead us to compulsively act out. And when you have it, just allow your mind to fill up enough with the story that you pay attention to the images and the, the words. Sometimes it'll be words like, I'll never find a good relationship, or I'll never find a good, I'll never feel confident in my art, or I'll never feel uh, a sense of purpose in my life. Something that really grabs hold of your attention. Oh, it's really activating. And just when it's there, I'd like you to gently bring your awareness down the, into your body, away from the thoughts, and I want you now to scan the same area that we just scanned a moment ago. Is there any change now in the muscles in your face? Is there any shift in like your jaw or your eyes? Do they suddenly feel heavier or is there tightness in the brow? And scanning down your throat is it still as pliant as it was just previously? Your chest. Do you still feel any warmth in it or openness or... Find some somatic shift that's happened, perhaps in the abdomen. And gently keep your attention there and just allow the feeling to be there. Feeling that lies beneath this issue to be the most important sensation in your life. And I'd just like you to right now, in your mind, just gently like you're talking to a child, just first assure it, I care about you. I care about your suffering, your loneliness, your disappointment. Whatever it is, I care about you. Sitting with the feeling, nurturing it, just allowing it. And 
Ben, in the gentlest interest in what do you want me to know? What is this? What is my unmet need? What hasn't been taken care of? And just stay with that feeling. Soothing, protecting, caring. Finding the most vulnerable expression and just showing up for it. Locating whatever is beneath whatever earlier wounds have been awoken by our current life. closing the meditation by just finding this, staying with this feeling and just repeating softly in the mind, I love you, keep going. 
I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. So whenever you're ready, take your time. Very slowly open your eyes, so slowly that you can bring with you any feelings you connected with. Not pushing away our state of being, but actually holding it with us, integrating it into our lives.